There's a crisis in the evangelical church over the nature of God. Reductionism has reduced the glorious God to a God of one attribute, and that is the attribute of love. It is a profoundly dangerous simplification. I'm not overstating this when I say this is the view of God for most outside the church and many even in the church. I've recently had this driven home several times to me. Think of the website that I saw just a few weeks ago when I was looking to try to find some information. And on the front of the website, it said simply, we preach the love of God at every service. They didn't say we preach the Bible or we preach God's truth or his holiness or his sovereignty or his justice. Just we preach the love of God in every service. Why not just say we preach God's truth, period? This is what the culture, though, is clamoring for is a reduced, simplified God. Those who only know the love of God and that one attribute cannot fathom the text we're about to preach tonight. In fact, they typically try to avoid it and not mention that, but we don't have that freedom because we are commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. We don't have the right to just portray those aspects of God's character that we're comfortable with. What we'll be doing tonight will, in some cases, make you shift in your seat. I had the great benefit just a couple of weeks before he died in the summer of 1995. I've told the story here a hundred times because it was one of the most profound conversations of my life. I had the great benefit of speaking to Dr. Greg Bonson, one of the great minds of the 20th century. And Dr. Bonson called to tell me that two members of his congregation, Tom and Claire Pollard, were moving from Southern California to Las Vegas and he's told me, because Dr. Bonson was that type of man, he told me, you will receive them as members next Sunday. I said, okay. The last thing, and we had a lengthy talk, about 45 minutes long. We talked about the pastoral ethics of gambling and, and a lot of other issues. The last thing he said to me was, Carl, never apologize for the word of God. When the news came a couple weeks later that he had died, I thought, that's so fitting that that's the last thing I ever heard him say. Never apologize for the word of God. Because if there's anything our culture desperately needs to learn, it's that the word of God is true, though every man be a liar. Tonight we're going to be looking at a, at a difficult issue, the wrath of God and making a five-point apologetic for it, because what we see in our text if you weren't listening very carefully as Pastor Dodds read the text in Joshua 6, you're looking at a display of the wrath of God. And so many of you are troubled by that and will be making an apologetic for it. We will need the help of the Holy Spirit to hear and understand this text aright. And so let's ask for that now. Sovereign Lord, you've given us this text by divine inspiration. And you have promised us that it will be profitable for us. It will profit us for doctrine. It will profit us for reproof. It will profit us for correction. And it will profit us for instruction in righteousness that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Lord, now take this word and press it home, deep into our minds and hearts. Deepen our trust in Christ. Strengthen our love to him and our reverence for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Hope you have your Bible open to Joshua 6, because not only will we be looking at Joshua 6, we'll also be looking at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but the context of, of our passage in Joshua 6 is that the people of God, Israel, has now come into the promised land. By God's mighty supernatural hand, 40 years earlier, they were rescued from Egyptian bondage. And then, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and disobedience, they have an army of a million soldiers. This mighty army has come into the promised land. They're marching around the first city they encounter in the promised land, the city of Jericho, a mighty city with high fortified walls. And for the first six days, the army of Israel, a million strong, they just march around the city once, then go back to their camp. But on the seventh day, they're commanded to march around the city seven times. And so they will march 13 times in one week around the city. And they've been promised by the word of God when they march around those seven times on the last day and shout, then the walls will drop. I want to carefully build a case in your hearing tonight for the rightness of what we read in verses 15 through 27. I hope you are looking at your copy of that in Joshua 6. Because immediately what happens upon the reading of this text Plenty of people outside the church and even some inside the church say, Carl, I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm giving you my trigger warning. I'm uncomfortable with God commanding his people to go in and take a city to exterminate the residents therein and then burn the city with fire. I don't like this. And what I want to do this evening is if God needed me to do so is vindicate the righteousness of God in this action. I want you to see the holiness of God and show very clear contemporary applications for us. But first, I want you to look at the facts of the narrative. Look at verse 20 in our text. And what we see is, first of all, you notice the sudden collapse of the city wall. We read, so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Now, I want you to hear again, I've already spoken of this in the previous weeks, but I want you to hear again how the wall fell down. It's important for us so you can get a visual. The wall doesn't fall out towards the armies of Israel. It doesn't fall in inside the city of Jericho. It just drops. When we lived in Las Vegas, several times on December 31st in different years, the big show on the Strip downtown were old hotels being blown up and blown up to make way for new ones. And so one year I took James and John and, and we went downtown on December 31st to see the Hotel Hacienda being blown up. It was on live TV in Las Vegas and the demolition experts would just drop the wall, the wall of the hotel where it was. Because the Hacienda Hope you don't know too much about Las Vegas. The Hacienda was right in the midst of several other buildings. They couldn't blow it up or the walls would fall out and, and make all sorts of damage. And so the demo experts just dropped it where it was. And of course, this being Vegas, they had to do it at midnight and have lots of fireworks go on. So at midnight, there were a few hundred thousand revelers down on the strip, of which James and John and I were three. And there were vendors going around selling things because an occasion like this is an occasion for a profit. And so, sure enough, when the, the demo experts dropped the Hotel Hacienda, everybody within about a half a mile radius was covered with dust and ashes. And after the great noise, you looked up and 
the hotel was missing. It was gone. All you saw was about a, about a 10-foot pile of rubble. And that's what happens in verse 20. I hope you're looking at that when you read these words that the wall fell down flat. And we need to recognize how sudden the collapse of the wall was. Jericho was a, a large city with tens of thousands of inhabitants. And many of the residents would have been poised on the wall. Some even lived on the wall. There were apartments built into the wall. They were looking out and watching. And all of a sudden something happened as soon as this 13th lap happened and the trumpets blew. The wall drops, and many were killed immediately. Now, I want you to see how common an event this is in Scripture. Keep one finger here and look over at 1 Kings chapter 20. And again, I'm going to ask you to look at quite a bit of Scripture tonight. And I want you to see what the rest of Scripture says about events like this. 1 Kings 20. You'll look at verse 29 and 30. This is a text that takes place during the reign of King Ahab. We read these words, 1 Kings 20, verse 29 and 30. They encamped opposite each other for seven days. It was on the seventh day that the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. Now here's a small city, Aphek, much smaller than Jericho. And when one of the walls of the city falls, there in Aphek you have 27,000 people killed. So in Jericho that day when the wall collapsed, already tens of thousands of the people were killed before a sword could be wielded upon them. There's a couple of preliminary applications in this narrative before we even really get to the punchline. First of all, isn't it horrifying that which many trusted in in Jericho, namely their high walls, turned out to be their destruction? Did you hear that? That which many trusted in, the height of their walls, turned out to be their destruction. We could wax eloquent tonight on that which many are trusting in today will turn out to be their destruction. Another brief application about this narrative is notice once again for the thousandth time in our reading of Scripture, the God of the Bible can break down the defenses of his enemies in a moment. Never think that God will be held out from judgment by border walls or missile defense systems or whatever. The God of the Bible cannot be restrained when he comes in wrath. Now go on in the narrative in Joshua 6, back in our text, and notice after the walls fall, what happened? See the swift destruction of the city by the sword. We read in verse 21, this is speaking of the armies of Israel, they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. I don't have to make this text overly graphic because the scripture is so plain. I don't have to engage in speculation. We can't make this more intense than it is. And what you have here is a profoundly sober picture. The carnage is swift and complete. No one in this huge city is spared except for Rahab and her extended family. Two-year-olds and 92-year-olds died by the sword. Newlyweds were executed on that day. The moans of the dying could be heard everywhere. The streets ran with blood. Gruesome was the sight and sickening was the smell. Don't misunderstand the mandate of Israel's army. 
They are doing this in obedience to God's command. Now I want you to see, I want to prop this up so you see that these are men under orders. Look back to Deuteronomy 20, and I want you to see the orders that they were marching under. They'd known of these orders for quite a while. And I want you to see that these soldiers, these million men, they're not a bunch of bloodthirsty pagans. They are doing an act of obedience to God's command. In Deuteronomy 20, long before they go into the land, look at what God tells them via his mouthpiece, Moses. This is while Moses is still alive. Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 and following. Moses says, But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest... Notice the motive. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God. And so when Israel comes in and destroys all of Jericho, it's simply an obedience issue. They've already been commanded to do this. Now why does God tell them? I want you to get into a little bit of the why. Why does God tell them to exterminate the Canaanites from out of the land? Look carefully at that verse you just saw, Deuteronomy 20:18, given to them long before they even crossed over to the promised land. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they've done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. There's a moral reason. God says, remove them because they will, if you don't, they will teach you their idolatrous ways. So when Israel's army is rapidly wiping out the city, they're doing so in accordance with a holy command God has given them. They're not a bunch of bloodthirsty mercenaries. They're godly, obedient soldiers. Now notice what happens after they go through the cities. Look back at our text in Joshua 6. They sanctify the spoils to God. There are certain things that they're supposed to give to the Lord. Look at Joshua 6.19, all the silver and gold and Vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They come into the treasury of the Lord. And what do the people do? They do as they're told. They, they gather up all these, these precious metals and bring them. And we read it again in verse 24. They burn the city and all that is within it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now after the taking out of the precious metals of the Lord's, uh, for the Lord's treasury... They burn everything, we're told two or three times in the narrative. The heaps of dead in the city of Jericho would have been so high that there would have been a serious health hazard had they not burned the city. But that's not the only reason for the burning of the city. Minimizing disease is just a side benefit. One of the reasons why they burned the city was to destroy the city's idols. And this is a message to all the Canaanite cities around when they came along after and saw that the city of Jericho, especially all of their idols, were burned, they got the message. Here's what happens to Canaanite idols. They get burned to ashes and powder. Now I want you to look at Deuteronomy 7 as well and see, because these are men under orders. They're very carefully following the commands of God through Moses. Look back at Deuteronomy 7 and see why they burned the city. 
again, in obedience to God's command, his holy command, long before the people come into the land, they're given this command. Look at Deuteronomy 7.25. So that as they've been <coughs> marching towards the promised land and then around, these commands are echoing in their mind. They know exactly what they're going to do once they get inside the city. They've been commanded and told. So in Deuteronomy 7.25, the Lord had told them, You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that's on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be spared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. So one reason why they burned the city was to destroy the city's idols. Another is to paint the picture for all the surrounding cities that our God is a consuming fire. After having skimmed the facts of the narrative, does this text present you the moral dilemma? Has the thought crossed your mind? Carl, I'm, un I'm uncomfortable reading this. I'm wary to have this text preached. I'm not sure that I see the applicability. Well, this generation is certainly not the first to raise these questions. They go all the way back to the first and second century of the Christian church. Marcion, a wealthy shipowner, came to Rome in A.D. 140. He was active in the church at Rome, but then was later excommunicated. He raised these same questions and concluded that there was such a contrast between the New Testament and the Old Testament that he ultimately rejected the whole Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he said, was different than the God of the New. And he consigned the God of the Old Testament to being a secondary, second-rate deity. And to Marcion, the Old Testament was a dangerous thing to study, so he refused to do so. He was condemned as a heretic by the church. This reasoning didn't hide long. It emerged again in the 4th century, a movement called Manichaeism. It was a dualistic system contrasting the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. And the Old Testament was viewed as inferior and a non-Christian book. And then in the 12th century, once again, the Catharists, as they were called, or the pure ones, further developed the same line of thinking. Even in the 20th century and now in the 21st, there are plenty of writers who want to critique and say, this sort of text that we read in Joshua 6 is not representative of the God of the New Testament. Well, our first response is, and now I want you to begin to pay very careful attention as we respond and build a case. Our first response is, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is always said to be righteous. Never can one of his actions be put under the microscope and it be said to be immoral. Now, I want to prove that. Again, I'm, I'm causing you to, to look at a lot of Scripture because I want you to be convinced tonight by the Word, not by my eloquence, for I have none. Look at Job chapter 8, and I want you to notice the case that's made there for the righteousness of God. Here's a man who's trying to get to the bottom of the problem of why the righteous are suffering. And notice what the rhetorical question is that's asked in Job 8, verse 3. The question is asked, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? Well, the question doesn't even require an answer. The answer is no, it's a rhetorical question. Of course, God is always righteous. He never does that which is unrighteous. Or look at the, the same issue brought up in Job 34. In Job 34, verse 10, we have the exact same sort of statement made. Job 34, 10, Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding, 
Far be it from God to do wickedness, and far be it from the Almighty to commit iniquity. And what you see here is all through the book of Job, God's righteousness, his holiness, is being defended. Or listen to the psalmist in Psalm 7, verse 9. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge and is angry with the wicked every day. Now right now, and I'm always fascinated by how people play mental chess with the preacher. There are folks playing mental chess and there are people a lot smarter than me in this room. You're saying, Carl, this is fine. You're defending God's righteousness and his holiness, and I see what you're doing. Every text you have cited to prove that are all Old Testament texts. And I'm suspicious of any defense of God's holiness and righteousness that comes from the Old Testament. Can you make that same case from the New Testament? Absolutely. Look at Romans chapter 9, because this defense grows stronger in the New Testament. Look at how Paul introduces this subject in Romans 9, verse 14. Now notice Paul, New Testament author, writing in the New Covenant, after the death and resurrection of our Lord, what does he say about the righteousness of God? Can it ever be questioned? Look what Paul writes in Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's about as flat a moral and ethical question as you can ask. Is there unrighteousness with God? Can you ever say that any one of God's actions recorded in the word is unrighteous? And look at Paul's answer. Certainly not. God forbid. Because any other answer is unthinkable. What Paul says by the Holy Spirit in Romans 9.14 is, you can never look at one of God's actions and say, well, that is unrighteous. Think about how twisted a charge that is. Paul later comments on this. He says, think about the perversion of a creature saying to the creator, turning things upside down, saying to his creator, you're unrighteous. Or think of the perversion of a sinner saying to the holy God, You're unrighteous. Well, someone will say, but if God is righteous, how could he do what we just read in Joshua 6? If God is holy, how could he order the slaying of these residents of Jericho? And what I want to do in the remaining few minutes is I want to give you good, wise reasons, five reasons, why God did that. And I want you to consider these carefully because the culture and even the church, when they look at things like this, they'll say, oh, this is just proof that the God of the Bible is an ogre. I want to get past the surface level of the narrative. Let me give you five considerations to think of and vindicate the righteousness of God in his wrath. First of all, when we look at Joshua 6 and God's righteousness is up for question, consider the vile crimes of the Canaanites. When we think of the wrath of God, consider the vile crimes of the Canaanites. And just in case you're not aware of what the lifestyle was like of Jericho and the rest of the Canaanite cities, look at Leviticus 18, and you're going to be confused for a moment because you're going to say, well, Carl, that looks like a description of Greenville. And we're going to make application to that in in just a moment. In Leviticus 18, verse 21 and following, 
the Lord speaks of what his problem is with the Canaanites in the land. Again, our first vindication of the righteousness of God is considering the vile crimes of the Canaanites. Pick up the narrative in Leviticus 18, verse 21, where the Lord says, You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. In other words, you'll not offer child sacrifice. Nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Homosexuality, it is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Bestiality. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it, its perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for all, by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. This is a short list, there are longer lists, of the national sins of Jericho. Homosexuality child sacrifice, bestiality. The first vindication of God's righteousness is this. God never judges innocent people. When Sodom is destroyed in Genesis 19, it is for outlandish moral perversion. When Babylon is crushed in Jeremiah 50, it's for egregious sin. When God brings wrath, it's always for sin. That's the principle of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Is the wrath of God ever revealed, ever, ever, ever revealed from heaven against holiness? No. A thousand times no. That's why Paul says the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is it that brings God's wrath every time? Lawlessness, wickedness. By the way, God promises the same treatment for Israelites if or when they fall into these sins. In Deuteronomy 13, the Lord states he'll do the same thing to Israel if they engage in the same sins. He's equitable. The first line of evidence, the first vindication of God's judgment and his righteousness is consider the vile, immoral, debased nature of the Canaanites. The second vindication of the wrath of God. Consider how long God had borne with their sin. In Genesis chapter 15, I've cited this text so often, the text is delightful because it speaks of Abraham's redemption. This is where God makes a covenant with him. And God is making covenant promises to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, it seems almost like an offhanded statement where the Lord says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 450 years from now, I'm going to bring your descendants into the land. And Abraham is left scratching his head thinking, well, Lord, why can't I just go into the land now? But listen to what the Lord says to Abraham in Genesis 15. You, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, your descendants will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Do you see what God is saying? He says these Canaanites, one of the nations of the Canaanites or the Amorites, they're dwelling in the promised land. These Canaanites have not yet worn out my patience. The cup of my wrath isn't full. It's filling. I need to be long-suffering for another 
450 years because I need to show my patience for centuries. And so if you have any thought that God has a hair trigger, put that away. Because what you see spilling out on Jericho is the accumulated cup of God's wrath after he's been patient century after century after century. And now his wrath isn't one of anger, it's one of deliberation. It's wrath that's based on long-suffering. I'm fascinated by people who will critique God's wrath. People say, I just don't like the idea of God's wrath. These are the same people who, when they get cut off in traffic, they'll go from one minute smiling along and singing with Buck Owens on the radio. That is who you sing along with, right? I need to do some discipleship around here. They, they go from singing along with Buck and Roy on the radio to laying on the horn and being angry and making all sort of unseemly gestures at cars all around them. And they have a hair trigger. Yet they can speak of God's wrath disparagingly conveniently ignoring something they know nothing of, his patience, his long-suffering. And so before you throw rocks at Joshua 6 and want to say that God is unjust, recognize the second consideration, how long God had borne with this wicked culture for centuries. A third justification of God's wrath. Consider all the warnings the residents of Jericho had. Look back at Joshua 2. Just turn backwards a couple of pages. And I want you to notice and remind you of what we've already seen in Joshua 2. In Joshua 2, when (coughs) General Joshua sends two Israelite cities into the, two Israelite spies into the city to check it out. You remember they lodged at Rahab the harlot's house. And when they came into the city, and you remember when they were talking to Rahab, what Rahab told them. Rahab, who's a Canaanite, a resident of Jericho, told them, look at Joshua 2.10, we have heard. This is a collective we. She's a resident of the city of Jericho. She's speaking for all her fellow Canaanites. She says, we have heard. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. When Rahab says that, think real carefully with me here. When Rahab says that, that we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, she's speaking of an event that happened 40 years earlier. Word had gotten over to Jericho, the God of Israel. He's the God who parts the waters. She goes on and says, and we have heard... What you did to the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you earlier destroyed. And as soon as we heard, collective we, whole city of Jericho, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage than anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God. Think of these warnings. These people in Jericho. They knew God and his people were headed that way. They'd known for 40 years that Jehovah had brought his people out of bondage and they were headed straight towards them, straight towards the promised land. They'd had 40 years to think about this since the Red Sea. But they didn't repent. These weren't ignorant people. They even had the example of Rahab who repented and believed. But they didn't. They'd been forewarned, and so they willfully sinned against warnings. 
And so for our third line of evidence, consider the warnings, the many warnings, the lengthy warnings the residents of Jericho had had. A fourth line of evidence. Consider the just deserts of all men. Before you say, oh, how could God do this? Consider what every man deserves. Our children memorized the shorter catechism on Wednesday night. By the way, this probably is the best thing we did, is our catechids on Wednesday night. If your preschool and elementary school children aren't here, they're missing out on a profound blessing. Our children are learning theology. Good, orthodox, confessional theology. They're learning the public theology of the church. And they ask and answer. You, ask your child this in the car on the way home. See if they can answer question 84. What does every sin deserve? And the answer comes back, every sin deserves. Deserves. God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. You and I deserve the exact same fate as the Canaanites who lived in Jericho and worse. We deserve the exact same fate because we were born in sin. We can say with David when he writes in Psalm 51, In sin my mother conceived me. We can say with David in Psalm 58 that we have gone astray from the womb. And apart from the sovereign searching mercy and intervening grace of God, dispensing the new birth, we are all liable to the wrath of God. Paul even says in Ephesians 2, we're children of wrath by nature. A fourth consideration, consider the just deserts of all men. A fifth consideration, and this is probably the one that makes ungodly men the angriest. It even makes many who name the name of Christ upset. Instead of questioning God's righteousness, consider God's sovereign prerogative to do what he wills with his creation. God is sovereign. Look back at Romans chapter 9 one more time, and I want you to see the ludicrous nature of questioning God. Paul says in Romans 9.20, when the readers in the church of Rome are questioning, Paul says in Romans 9.20, Oh man, who are you? You're a man. You're a creature. You're but of a moment. And that's the same here, right inside these walls. We are momentary. There are some of you who in the next year I'll stand at a graveside and preach your funeral. And you'll last that long, and so will I. And who are we? A speck of dust? Transitory? Who are you and I to call a holy and a sovereign God into the witness stand and say, we demand you give an account for your actions. You owe us an explanation. Paul's response in Romans 9.20 is, who are you? He says, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? And he goes on and spreads out the metaphor. He says, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Doesn't the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? You see the principle that Paul is saying. Listen, if you don't buy any of the other arguments previous, then buy this. God is sovereign. Put your hand over your mouth. God will do what he desires, and what he does is always right, and for his own glory. That's why the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. My friend, who are you and I to question the ethics of God? You and I who sin daily in word, thought, and deed. You and I who are in desperate need of a redeemer. 
How dare we raise a question against a God who has angels encircling his throne right now who are crying out this word, holy, holy, holy. How do we apply this text? Let me make four very basic applications. The first is a national and corporate application. Our nation is sprinting towards the same judgment of the city of Jericho. That's not said for shock effect. It's said after sober examination. Because of our wickedness, we too are overrun with the same sins that God condemned in Jericho. Sexual perversion, child sacrifice. We've killed over 60 million of our own children in the womb in 50 years. By the way, that's the most conservative estimate. It's probably closer to 70, but I'll be conservative. Do you see any parallels between us and Jericho? Do you think the United States will escape God's just wrath? If God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Jericho. God will not be mocked. The cup of his wrath is filling now. The burning of Jericho is a picture for all to see of eternal unquenchable fire. And why I tell you this application is to say that we as God's people are called to be watchmen to say to our neighbors, God's wrath is coming, but if you'll repent like Rahab, God will show you mercy. The second application. How suddenly judgment seems to fall on the wicked. It's astounding when you read this narrative that the the people of Jericho, just days before the event, what were they doing? Just going about their normal life. Just seven days earlier, this group of soldiers show up outside their walls, a million of them, and they walk around the walls. And the residents of Jericho look down over the walls, and they think, well, that's strange, but life will go on as normal. And so they're buying and selling. They're doing their normal lives. And the second day, here come the soldiers again. They walk around silently once again. And now just... Seven days after these men show up on the scene, their whole world has been turned upside down, their city burned with fire, and judgment has fallen. Perhaps you today have no thought of thinking about eternity and judgment, and you're living life as though you'll live forever, as though you'll live on the same street and eat the same meals and enjoy the same relationships and television programs and beach trips. You don't want to think about Issues of judgment and righteousness and salvation. You're the person to whom Jesus says in Luke 12, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. My friend, if there's anything this text says to us, is it speaks to us of the suddenness of God's judgment. It is incumbent upon you and I and all men to be ever ready to meet the Lord face to face. A third application. The only way to flee from the wrath to come is to flee into the arms of Christ. If I were just standing here as a herald tonight telling you that judgment is coming, I wouldn't be your friend, but I come as your friend tonight. I come as one who announces good news, that Christ died for sinners. He's died for people more wicked than those who lived in Jericho. He has lived a sinless life, and he will credit his sinlessness to your account. That he has taken the wickedness of sinners and placed it on himself and borne it at Calvary. He offers that free salvation to you if you will but repent and believe in him. He offers it freely to all men and women without exception. To Canaanites and Israelites alike. And so I would plead with you tonight. 
Flee from the wrath to come. Don't say tomorrow will be a better day. Don't say next week will be more convenient. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day God has appointed for you to hear and respond. Fourth application that we need to hear when we deal with a text like this. Dr. Greg Bonson said it to me. I say it to you. I hope these words ring in your ears. Never apologize for the word of God. Never be embarrassed by its teaching. The Bible alone is living and active, Hebrews 4 tells us. The Bible alone is true and perfect and profitable, according to 2 Timothy 3. The Bible alone is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and listen to this, for training in righteousness. And so we dare not ignore certain parts of the word. We are to preach, believe, and confess the whole counsel of God. Don't be surprised when men critique the Bible's history or science or ethics. But remember, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. May our holy and righteous God cause us to live soberly, uprightly in this wicked generation.